1: You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Hello out there in uh, archaeology podcast land. This is Dr. Alan Garfinkel. I'm the president and founder of the California Rock Art Foundation. And what we do is we identify, evaluate, manage and conserve rock art, both in Alta, California and in Baja, California. We conduct field trips. We have trainings, exercise. We do research. And in every way possible, we try to preserve, protect and coordinate treasures of Alta and Baja California rock art, of which there are many and diverse. We also work closely with Native Americans and uh, partner with them to recognize and protect sacred sites. So for more info about the fabulous California Rock Art Foundation, you can go to carockart.org. Also, I'm, I'm open to give me a call, 805-312-2261. We would uh, welcome sponsorship or underwriting, uh, helping us to defray the costs of our podcasts. And also membership in California Rock Art Foundation. And of course, donations since we are a 501c3 nonprofit scientific and educational corporation. God bless everyone out there in podcast land.
0: You're listening to the Rock Art Podcast. Join us every week for fascinating tales of rock art, adventure, and archaeology. Find our contact info in the show notes and send us your suggestions.
1: Hey out there in rock art podcast land, this is your host, Dr. Alan Garfinkel. We're going to be interviewing Michael Adance, who's a rock art cinematographer, and this is going to be such a wild ride. We're going to cover a lot of territory and deal with some thorny issues, and I think you're going to really enjoy this one. Howdy out there in archaeology podcast land. This is your host, Dr. Alan Garfinkel. Uh, president and founder of the California Rock Art Foundation, and it's one of our uh, regularly scheduled and wonderful Rock Art podcasts, episode ninety-five. And for this one, be a little bit different. We have a gentleman by the name of Michael Adance How was that, Michael? That was great. Be- better than nothing, right? <laughs> we'll cut, we'll, <laughs> well, get, we'll cut it out
0: and post. You sound you sound very Armenian. Very
1: Armenian. I must I must tell you. We have to have some stuffed cabbage, Michael. We're going to be talking to Michael about rock art, cinematography, and all things rock art. He is a uh, freelance researcher who's uh, producing a bit of a cinematography, a, a an element, a program on rock art. And with that, I'll uh, introduce you and maybe say a few words, Michael, to our uh, audience. I guess you've, you've heard this... Uh, You've you've listened to the Rock Art podcast before?
0: Yeah, I, I actually just did. Uh, you know, today in the morning when you reached out, I tried to like listen. Oh, good. Uh, to a few episodes. Good.
1: And and we met at the uh, Petroglyph Festival in Ridgecrest. Yes. And uh, you you button me and said, "I, I need you to, uh, uh, you know, I need some need some videography, some cinematography. Or can I uh, shadow you?" And I said, "Sure." And I think you. Uh, Went around with me for one of the petroglyph uh, park tours, didn't you?
0: Yes, I did. I did. Uh, I went on the tour with a group.
1: And how did oh, that go?
0: You did. You did very well. Uh, I thought it was very informative. You
1: gave, you gave me a B plus. Uh, I
0: would give you, you know, a strong A minus.
1: <laughs> a strong a. see it's on it's on the edge there. And then you asked me to sit down and do some sort of post tour. Discussion? Did we have a chance to do that at all or no?
0: I don't think we got a chance to do that. Well, we had just met that day and I thought it would be nice to just like get to know each other because you were mentioning the podcast even back then. And I was sort of saying I could help with that yeah. and uh, you could maybe help me a little bit with my research. Um, so we just kind of talked.
1: Give the audience some sort of a glimmer of why in uh, the wide, wide world of everything possible, you chose to do a rock art Uh, cinematography project and uh, what was your motivation and what were you thinking about and what caused you to really focus in on the subject it's not something that's common
0: yeah it's definitely not too common well what brought me to the subject originally is the topic of portable rock art which is sort of like a niche
1: portable portable rock rock
0: art art. i know there's a term called portable art which is an actually you know a scientific Mm -hmm. uh, archaeological term But there's kind of a French term called portable rock art. And it it comes from very much from like the amateur field in archaeology, where basically people are all over the world, including, you know, the States, North America, you know, claim to find rocks that they claim to be artifacts made by the natives of the area, uh, ancient artifacts. And the thing about them is, you know, you kind of really have to read into their interpretation of these, quote-unquote, artifacts to see what they're seeing in it. So there, there are cases where you can kind of see faces or face figures, which, you know, in the movement, sort of say, is called like face stones. And then there are a lot of bird figure interpretations. So I got kind of into this you know, sort of a YouTube hole, uh, you could say, about this topic. And I saw some research about it.
1: Hey, Michael, I I know a bit about portable rock art. I have a colleague who actually graduated with a Ph.D. about the time I was entering UC Davis, and his name is David Hurst Thomas. Do you know him?
2: I do. I do not.
1: He's the um, director of prehistory at the American Museum of Natural History in New York, And he's recently put together an an article on the uh, portable rock art of the entire Great Basin. He had had me look at it and review that article before it appeared in American Antiquity. He's considered one of the most prestigious and scholarly archaeologists and has done very little in the way of work in rock art. And I was very, very surprised to uh, read and see what he had to say about portable rock art. I think what got him very interested in it is uh, he had excavated a cave in the Great Basin, a dry cave in that Great Basin environment. He found literally hundreds and hundreds of portable rock art artifacts, and so. Uh,
2: wow, that's that's very interesting.
1: Yeah, decided to take it on his shoulders to do to collect and identify and inventory and assess all those objects that that he was aware of or that had been published on portable rock art throughout the entire Great Basin and I had read in advance rather deeply and had always been interested in this portable rock art per se for a variety of reasons. I just wanted to seed our conversation mentioning this and as this conversation moves we'll see if any of the ideas or things that I have in mind would play well with your research.
2: Yeah, that's very fascinating. And it's interesting that you say that, you know, this side where he found it, he found uh, a large quantity of sort of portable rock art pieces. It was in a
1: single cave, a rock shelter. And if you look in the entire Great Basin, the Desert West, there's literally thousands and thousands of these portable rock art artifacts. They're made of slate or of some either green, brown, or gray, and they're scratched. Usually on one side or both sides. Does any of that make any sense?
2: Yes, it does definitely. You know, it's 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 interesting that it's in a cave, because as far as I understand, uh, it is easier to tell whether or not an artifact is indeed an artifact if it's found in a cave, because you know, you, uh, sort of the cave itself can be researched whether or not these types of stones are present there. So that's a unique case, and I know one of the most recognized pieces of portable rock art, I think I mentioned to you when we met, was the, and I'm probably going to mis- mispronounce it, so I'll have to repeat it. But it's the uh, yeah. Makapansgat Pebble, yes, which was found in South Africa in a cave where there were uh, bones of uh, Australopithecus uh, also found at the same cave, and the type of rock or mineral that this pebble is made out of is not present anywhere near that area inside the cave, around the cave. So archaeologists sort of, you know, proclaimed that this was something that ancient people, uh, you know, around 3 million years ago, recognized something, you know, totemic or some type of uh, recognition of its uh, facial features and brought with them to the cave.
1: I'm also familiar with this, with this artifact you're talking about. It's interesting because there's a gentleman on the East Coast who uh, was very, very interested in that artifact, and he wrote uh, research designs trying to get yeah. funded to visit, I guess, the uh, curation facility where that artifact is found. Did you, did you connect with him at all? Do you know who he is? I'm not sure. No, I
2: haven't, I haven't really mentioned uh, or talked to anyone about the, the Pebble itself. Um, I just know that it is a popular example.
1: He was specifically interested in that pebble, in that uh, particular Mm -hmm. artifact, and doing further research on it or on comparable artifacts as well. He wrote a whole series of research designs and and particular analytical studies that he wanted to do on that particular artifact. But his uh, project, unfortunately, was never deemed successful nor funded by National Geographic. But I think he was introduced to me from um, the gentleman who does the, um, that journal called Rock Art Research. You had mentioned him. His name is Bednarik, Robert Bednarik. And uh, Robert is one of the most, I think, influential and prestigious rock art researchers in the world. So I uh, attended one of the conferences that uh, the International Organization for Rock Art and uh, rock art research itself out of Australia had in New Mexico. And that's how I met a number of these uh, researchers from all over the world. That was quite an amazing experience. So, Michael, I, I don't mean to uh, monopolize the time, but please go on. I'm, I'm intrigued.
2: Uh, no, of course, that does sound very interesting. I'm sure, you know, so many researchers have such unique expertise in the field, so you know, I'm sure you can learn a lot. But was the person by any chance that you were mentioning about the pebble named Raymond A. Dart? Because no, he wrote this article that I read, but it's from 1974 from the South African Journal of Science. That's uh, the the most detailed article that I read about the pebble itself.
1: Interesting, interesting. Yeah, no, he's another individual. He um, is a professor on the East Coast. And I'll uh, research him and get you his name. But he's been um, mostly interested in cognitive neuroscience. And he's commented on various articles that appeared in the IFRA, the International Federation of Rock Art Organizations. That is a, And their journal is called Rock Art Research. And that's the one that I pub- I've mentioned this to you on our independent telephone uh, conversation that I had been uh, published three different times in various articles that I had written because that, that is the most widely read and the most, um, I think one of the more difficult journals to um, have your research appear. It's now published both in, both in color. It's in color now. And uh, they, they do a a fantastic job. It only appears twice a year.
2: So the um, researcher you mentioned, uh, Robert G. Bednarik, I'm sure he would, be familiar with all these topics that we're discussing and you know it took me about like 10 minutes of being on google and researching uh rock art to you know come by his name and sort of see his extensive publication record and um i bought one of his books and read it called myths about rock art uh you know he definitely does not stand by a lot of the mainstream theories in archaeology i know he is very into the domestication theory of sort of human evolution.
1: Yes, yeah.
2: He's not a big fan of the Africa first theory. And uh, yeah, and like uh, in terms of the rock art, the myths about rock art books, uh, you know, taught me a lot just in terms of how, um, you know, open-ended the research can be, some of the problems in the field, some of the experiments that, proved how an outsider of a certain culture can hardly sometimes interpret rock art pieces.
1: Definitely. I think we should cut it off about there because we, well, I think we'll have a lot to say. We've not really tackled some of the questions that you and I began to discuss on the phone, but I think this might be a wonderful venue to do that. See you on the flip-flop, gang. More to come. Welcome back. For all you fans of the Rock Art Podcast, we have uh, Michael Adans here with us. He's a rock art cinematographer creating a a documentary film on the subject of rock art, which uh, he's going to tell us a bit more about. And as we discussed, it opens up a lot of uh, issues involving the study of rock art, some of the theories, the methodologies, the various uh, models and perspectives that various researchers have. On the study of rock art so take it away Michael Op- open it up open the can of worms for us how's that
2: yes so Alan so you know in my very uh, limited research about rock art uh, I've discovered some um, you know controversies about uh, interpretations and specifically talking about an Australian experiment conducted by uh, Dr. M- uh, McIntosh uh, in mm-hmm. the 50s where he had a certain interpretation of various anthropomorphic pieces in the Northern Territory in, in Australia. Later on, he was able to find uh, a member of that culture, an indigenous member of the culture that was highly initiated in their tradition and actually knew uh, exactly what the pieces that Macintosh had been studying for uh, somewhat of a, like around a decade, I think, uh, meant. And basically, it turned out that 90% of McIntosh's interpretation of these pieces was incorrect and initiated a member of uh, that culture was able to sort of dispute it or, you know, give the actual correct interpretation. So, you know, I bring this up to kind of begin the discussion with you about some of the issues that can arise when uh, an outside of a culture is interpreting rock art and whether or not we're even able to do that, Uh, you know, if we're not uh, an insider uh, and have been sort of raised uh, by the ways of a certain culture, can we even understand what the art represents?
1: Yeah, I think you're right on the money. And I think that uh, Bednarik's cautious note, his caveats are valid. And it's unfortunate that uh, Robert has taken such an extreme stance uh, very extreme. You know, there's, there's different perspectives on rock art. And, and one of those that I find the most grievous or difficult to deal with are some of my colleagues who are very well known in the field of rock art and have uh, published some of the key articles about rock art and even those in my own research area. And when they, they talked to me about it, they said, Well, Alan, it's only rock art. You can say whatever you want to say about it. And, that, and that's definitely uh, an incorrect assessment. I believe that the key to rock art understanding is to, to uh, get as close to you can as an insider's view. You need to dig deep in the ethnography, in the anthropology, and also the indigenous perspective on rock art and on the, I would call it the theology, the religious perspective, the the cosmological nexus, and also understand some of the neurophysiological elements of all this, the cognitive neuroscience, and, and also the embedded understanding of symbols. It's called semiotics. We've had people on here talking about semiotics as well. And using all the different threads and data sets that we can simultaneously, we're certainly never going to get To a, uh, you know, a, how would you put it, an incontrovertible, you know, ultimately factual reading of rock art. But that being said, we can get to a level where we ask informed questions, we gather data, and we get uh, some sort of a superficial, if not sometimes rather deep understanding of the the meanings, the intent, the stories, and all the various uh, elements, the cosmological elements, the sort of package of compound meanings that are embedded in just a single panel or even a single element of rock art. And I would argue that sometimes we're lucky and sometimes we can talk to native people where they tell us what various elements of a rock art panel mean to them. And when we get to that level, that's sort of an, an, it's called emic, understanding of the um, images and symbolism and the packages of understanding, the compound metaphors that are embedded in these panels. You wouldn't think that that looking at a panel of rock art would be so difficult to understand, but it is. It takes decades and decades of study, and then drilling down... Into the ethnographic record, and also drilling down into to knowing everything you possibly can about the various facets of what we're studying. It takes understanding of of theology, of neuroscience, neurophysiology. Takes an understanding of the of the animal behavior, the habits and habitats of the animals being represented. It has to do with language and linguistic uh, prehistory and uh, comparative linguistics. I could go on and on and on. But the, the number of layers of meaning and information that one needs to uh, do a good job of deconstructing rock art is rather rather overwhelming to most people. So most people don't, uh, would, no, most scholars and most, most academicians would never attempt it. But occasionally we do. And when we do, sometimes little bits of treasure there And we get a glimmer of the actual meaning of what those images meant to those people that lived hundreds and sometimes thousands of years ago. So that's what I think on that one. And I guess uh, Robert Bednarik, even though he takes a very extreme view, an alternative view, an alternative platform, explanatory platform of looking at rock art, there must be a hint in him of some of the alternative ways of thinking about rock art because he's published three of my articles <laughs> and they certainly have a good dose of this symbolic metaphor and an ethnographic understanding of what these images mean. So how does that hit you, Michael?
2: Uh, that hits me uh, uh, very well. Uh, definitely. You know, I think he, as a person who studied uh, rock art for his, you know, for uh, the majority of his professional career, I'm sure but Narek is still very interested and believes in uh, researching the topic. But I do see his point about basically that there's a lot of wood at the, you know, base of the subject and of the research that needs to be sort of burned off. And a lot of the interpretations and meanings are uh, maybe reconsidered. I like that.
1: I, li- I like that. So so the yeah. only caveat I have is don't don't throw out the baby with the bathwater.
2: No, yeah, yeah, definitely <laughs> yeah. don't don't do that. And
1: one of the most cutting edge examples of good interpretation, right? Is Carolyn Boyd's book on the White Shaman, the Pecos Tradition. And she does the deconstruction and the ethnographic work and the semiotics that I'm talking about all in one. And it actually won the award uh, for the best new volume in uh, the Society for American Archaeology back in, I believe, was uh, 2020. So I think that rock art has, in some ways, hit its stride. Not that it hasn't, has a long ways to go. but And as you tell me, and as, as, we, as I know very well, we're, we've, we've come a little ways, but we have a very, very long ways to go.
2: Yeah, I think it definitely fascinates people, uh, one way or the other. Like the way I think about it is, of course, it's a very sensitive topic. It's something that needs to be very much respected, and the uh, members of the cultures that are being studied that are present today, you know, they like the the research approach needs to involve them and
1: involve. Yes absolutely um, that's you know, that's one of the somehow I'd say one of the newest well, yes done. yes and that's and that's yeah. one of the other you know th- theoretical battles we're we're having is how to bring native americans into the fore and integrate them in our research absolutely and we do that we do that but but not very well go ahead and it's it's something that is a hard to do well
2: because you know like like you were saying there's so many you know if if you find uh, a a rock art painting you might think that you know a couple hours of analysis might uh, bring a good good interpretation but in reality like the things that archaeologists need to do to even try to get the right dating or uh, any any sorts of a right interpretation yeah it's like chemistry is involved like history uh, animal behavior you're absolutely right it becomes like probably one of the vastest fields in all of academia because there's absolutely no context. You know, if you're studying a Renaissance painting, there's a ton of context. You know, the the whole schools, the whole historiography that is very well detailed. But here, all you have is, uh, you know, the place and you got to study the place and the history of the place and the geology. So it, it becomes very overwhelming and I see how Somebody who is into archaeology and never thought that they would ever have to study something like geology or animals or radiocarbon dating, you know, they, they just don't want to do that. But that's in reality what you sort of have to look into to to get as many details, details as possible.
1: But to pay respect to, to, the, to one of our themes, and I, I've mentioned this to you, I think, and others, is that I spent 40 years studying the rock art of Eastern California, paintings, petroglyphs, etc. But in 4 years of working on that book called the um, Handbook of the Kawaiisu, who are an indigenous group that that live in that area and trying to do a synthetic study, summarizing what we know about rock art ethnology, archaeology, contemporary activities of the of the native group, linguistics, basketry, you name it, sort of a soup to nuts anthology. I learned more from working directly with the Native people and providing me with their insights and wisdom than I did in the total 40 years. It it opened up my mind and dismantled my structure of knowing. One of the the biggest data sets that is ignored consistently by archaeologists is oral tradition, or I call it sacred narrative and it's also given the name mythology that I don't don't like. But by studying the creation stories and the sacred narratives and uh, probing deeply into the uh, structure of those stories, their subject matter and the uh, nature of those, the images, the animals, the activities that are being conducted, they're often sometimes a roadmap to understanding rock art because there's this theology, there's ritual, there's mythology, there's ceremony, and they're all interwoven so closely together in this fabric of another ontology, another way of seeing and understanding the world. And you might might have something to say about any of that.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think it's one of the most fascinating parts uh, about rock art, just how much it can teach us about the depth of uh, the human mind. I think it's fascinating to see how a modern day person interprets a piece and then learn, you know, the, the reality of what's behind it and just how far off uh, it can be and how niche and foreign ancient mythology can be. And it's kind of what Bindarnik said, it's almost like uh, the uh, indigenous people possess a software
1: that we lack. To be able to analyze, and I would agree wholeheartedly with that. Yes, that's exactly right. There's very few papers that I've read that really approach that question, of sort of the differences in software, the difference, the difference of the cognitive nature of the universe, that is uh, gathered by native people, versus the Western industrial concept. But um, I'm uh, tackling that from a number of different angles lately, which is uh, rather amazing. So where do we go from here, Michael? What is your ethnic background or what is your historical background for dealing with all this? I know that when I met you, I detected an accent.
2: Uh, yeah, I think we uh, spoke a little bit about the khachkars, that um, is sort of the uh, native Armenian art practice. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Not to say that uh, you know, I know a lot about them, but you know, as far as uh, stone-based art goes, Culturally, Armenians are actually masters of it, some of the more modern masters of it because, you know, a lot of other cultures moved away from working with stone. But Armenian Christians uh, were so fascinated with stone weaving and creating stone churches. You know, my background is I'm I'm Armenian. I I, uh, grew up in Russia and then I moved to the States when I was in my early teens. And, you know, I've always been fascinated by cinema and uh, film, you know, but history is also uh, very much interested me and I just wanted to sort of combine the two and I just felt that there was no real, no real resource that captures just how open to interpretation uh, our human past is.
1: I see where you're going with this. I like it. No, I like it because uh, I did a film with an Emmy and Oscar winning cinematographer and we worked four years on it. And I don't, I, don't know, I don't think you've seen it yet. It's called Talking Stone. One of the critiques was, you didn't answer the questions, Alan. <laughs> he, you know, because my my cinematographer editor, who uh, voices over the whole thing, says, you know, I'll end it like this. is It began as a as an enigma or a mystery. It ends with a mystery. <laughs> and we had... We had a half a dozen different yeah. people try to explain it. Yeah. Explain it. And maybe the the push and pull is the mystery. That's the connection that people have with this data set. And with that, I'll take another break and see you on the flip-flop, gang. So we're back out there in archaeology podcast land. This is your host, Dr. Alan Garfinkel on the Rock Art Podcast. We're at episode 95 with a Remarkable cinematographer who hails from a lot of different regions, exotic to the United States. And he's taken it upon his responsibilities to do something with rock art in his uh, cinematography, artistic way. Michael, so we got, in, we got into it there in, in, pretty deeply, didn't we?
2: Uh, we got into it, definitely. Uh, you know, while we're on this subject of cinematography, I just wanted to bring up that uh, it is hard to make rock art interesting on, uh, uh, on film. I would say (laughs) surprisingly shooting rocks can be a little bit difficult in terms of, you know, like fascinating your viewer.
1: (laughs) Paul Goldsmith said that it was the most difficult project he's ever had doing this uh, talking stone, because how do you make, how do you make the rocks dance and sing?
2: No, absolutely. And there's stuff you can try like D stretch, which kind of makes things a little more visible and colorful, but, uh, you know, and then the other problem is what you brought up before the break, which is, you know, you start with a mystery, you end with a mystery, which is just not sort of the the film way, the Hollywood way of telling a story. You know, you want to have answers. You, wanna, like, you, you, wanna have answers. you want to have answers. You want to have conclusions. Then, yeah. 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 And then to tell people, no, actually, we know what it is. It's this. And we just, you know, told you all but in- exactly
1: beginning a middle and an end it's got to evolve and it's got to have emotions and dance and sing and pull you in and give you a tug so all of that has to be done so michael michael in your advent- adventure on developing this cinematic uh, wonderkind in rock art what has been your i guess your most interesting or exciting discovery so far
2: well, uh, I you know we can circle back to the topic of portable rock art just because I kind of want to bring uh, people's attention to it. There's you know a fringe movement basically happening online where amateur archaeologists find um, rocks in areas that they claim to be artifacts, and they're. You know, thousands of videos about this on YouTube from different channels, different individuals from different regions. Many of them talk to each other, sort of share information, share posts. There, if you go on eBay, and you know, type in portable rock art, you'll get like a bunch of stones that are being sold for like thousands of dollars that I don't think anyone's buying. But <laughs> you know, it uh-huh. it just Tell became a, sort of a weird. Uh, a, a weird thing that I discovered there's there's a portable rock art museum.
1: What? Come on. Which is really? a web,
2: Which is yeah, which is like a a website. I don't know if it's a physical museum, but if you look it up, uh, if you literally just go on Google and look up portable rock art museum, the you know it'll take you there, and they have an enormous amount of research photos, and they quotes, uh, and this is the website where I first learned about. Robert J. because they quote him a lot and, uh, you know, some of his articles. And it is a very sort of out there thing. I actually ended up, so when I first got into this and I first found my first YouTube channel about portable rock art, I didn't even know about, you know, anything about archaeology, basically. I just thought that this gentleman has been finding real artifacts that he has been sharing online for us to see and that, you know, uh, given with some time, you know, someone's going to discover these videos on YouTube and take up all his collection and put it in the museum or something like that. Like, it, you know, some of the pieces that he originally was posting were very much, like, I could recognize the face stones that he was talking about. Like, I could, mm-hmm. I, I sort of was on board. And then I've learned that, oh, no, this is actually a very argued-about topic. And this is not certain. And this is sort of like just his interpretation. So I ended up visiting Uh, as gentleman he lives in north carolina and he took me to the site where he's been finding his quote unquote artifacts and some of his home collection and we talked a lot about it and uh, you know this is this is a person who's not an archaeologist by any sense of the word but uh they're sort of successful in their own field they definitely don't need like any type of like you know exposure or they're not really like looking for fame or, or something like that. So this just kind of like overtook their life though, you know? So uh, it just became like the biggest topic and their, their whole house is full of rocks and they make a lot of videos on YouTube and
1: have sort of a grown community. <laughs> and, and there are a lot of people like this online. So what is your assessment of the uh, integrity, validity, utility of this particular adventure? In, in in rock art?
2: The, so when we went around, there were, the, you know, so some of the pieces that he would show me, I would really need to sort of like listen to his interpretation and try to see it from yeah. his eyes to understand yeah. sort of how he, uh-huh. so that, that, that was hard. But, uh, you know, at the Ridgecrest Festival, I learned a little bit about uh, what it takes to work with stone. Uh, and uh-huh. I talked to a footnapper there and uh, yes. sort of our discussion and stuff. So I kind of, Uh, Try to see if any of the stones were worked on, you know, something that had evidence of like napping uh, or something like that. And there were definitely a couple pieces that he showed me that it's hard to argue that they weren't modified, you know, that they were natural pieces. And uh, there are very few of these pieces that are very like, uh, like very hard to argue that they're not modified out of his vast collection. But the fact that they all come from the same place you know, it, it sort of comes, you know, becomes a thing where, well, these pieces, I do see how these could be artifacts. So does that mean that the rest of the pieces, like does that prove the integrity of
1: their uh, validity more, you know? Give them validity and authenticity. Yeah. Well, Michael, you're you're teaching me something because I never heard of anything about this before. I didn't know there was this huge camp of people that are, uh, uh, passionately interested in portable rock art artifacts <laughs> that are that are that look like various beings or pictures or animals or people or whatever i did not know that yeah, i think i've definitely. seen them once in a while people may have sent me something and i've told them no that's really not anything but there must be a, a camp of people that that uh, obviously I believe there's some validity to this there's um a concept called pareidolia, and you know about that, right? Where people—oh, yeah—they
2: hate when you talk about stuff. Like this.
1: <laughs> oh, oh, I know they—they're gonna go nuts now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That,
2: um, thats when they start rolling their eyes and stop. Yeah, stop listening. Right, right, those, because because, because immediately processes. I know that
1: if yeah if I if I look at the uh, the ground, I can pick up pictures of of people and animals, and you stare at clouds in the sky and all of the above, but it is uh, far and few that we find actual artifacts, portable artifacts especially, that are fashioned into uh, forms that are uh, comparable to things we see in the natural world. The Chumash were famous for that, and they had uh, artifacts made of soapstone where they replicated various uh, sea creatures, be they fish or uh, sea mammals. but. Even those were uh, subject to uh, some interesting uh, dynamics, political dynamics, where uh, an individual got involved with it and decided to make some of those for himself (laughs) and sell them as authentic. And uh, he got away with it and uh, made himself a pretty penny. So this was way down at at the turn of the century, early 1900s. That all of us went down. And um, I believe there's an article in the Journal of California and Great Basin Anthropology. Uh, yeah,
2: well, it wasn't an incidental. But- Robert Heiser, yeah, yeah,
1: yeah exactly. Please.
2: Uh, yeah, I mean, fraud and archaeology, it's, uh, there, there are a couple of famous examples. And I think ultimately, like the portable rock art movement suffers from vi- various maladies. And uh, the number one malady is the fact that you know no one takes sort of no, one no one takes them serious. No no one takes them seriously and because no one takes them seriously, they don't take professional archaeologists seriously, which is an issue and they, they will they will be the first ones to tell you how many issues professional archaeology possesses but at the same time you know they, they use all these arguments against it. To just prove that they're the ones right you know and that right, uh, right. Their, their their interpretations are correct and that everyone should take them seriously and make them famous and you know give them money or something like that not to yeah. say that all of them are like that there are a lot of you know more of like um for a, a lack of a better word like or like more like hippie people you know who, who yes. are really into rocks and they uh, really see things in them and they just want to share it you know, their love for it and their, lo- their love for their quote-unquote artifacts and uh, kind of bring people's attention to that. You know, it's a very vast thing, and and it's actually been present. Uh, yeah, I can send you an article, but the discussions about this have been going on in American archaeology since I believe the 60s from my research. That's the earliest that I've been able to find um, mentions of portable rock art.
1: I think this could be a fabulous movie, let me tell you, because it uh... – it it will uh, capture or or sort of deal with uh, one of those, call it fringe movement or some sort of a, an unusual movement of people that are passionate about a subject that is highly controversial and some would say completely fraudulent. So anyways, there's uh, all of that. Well, Michael, I think we've got the perfect uh, sort of bow on the, on the package for this one. Part of what we're dealing with here is an alternative sense of reality. It's, a, it's another cognitive sort of realm. Native people believe that rocks, water, plants, sky, everything is sentient and has agency. It's alive and has a, a knowledge and makes choices. And in fact, uh, physicists are beginning to believe that there's quite a bit to that particular perspective. And I think that some of us have alternative ways of seeing the world and they can get a glimpse of what those rocks may be telling us about who they are, what they are, and what they're intending to communicate. Does that make any sense to you?
2: Yeah, definitely, and I think we even see that today. I mean, look how many people today are into crystals and oh yes, you know, all sorts of stone conventions. Even forget the portable rock art topic. We, you know, in LA there like you know huge conventions where people just come around and talk about rocks, talk about stones, minerals.
1: Well, Michael, you gave me the greatest ending. We're talking about uh, quartz crystals, or even the white milky quartz. Scientists have told us that those are particular stones that have life in them. They have a thing called triboluminescence or piezoelectricity properties that if you pound them together, they turn red and have a red fire inside of them. And they actually uh, transmit and are used in electronics as a a means of uh, conveying a particular uh, set of electronic uh, sound bites. And so We have a meeting of the minds where the native people were aware of the sentient qualities, the agency, the the aliveness of these items. And physicists, uh, scientists have demonstrated that, yes, indeed, they are alive and they transmit energy. So by transmitting energy, that's exactly what we're after. So with that, I think we'll close it off. Michael, you want to say a few words to end it?
2: Yeah, just, uh, you know, I just think that amateur archaeology and professional archaeology have intertwined histories and oftentimes things that came from the fringes uh, ended up becoming accepted by the mainstream, but often not. So I think everyone just has to keep an open mind and, you know, be able to Really do scientific research and scientific work and uh, prove their points with good arguments. So I just hope that the portable Bar- rock art movement is able to um, find some some plausible solutions to the problems that it's presenting.
1: Michael, it's been a pleasure to have you on on board. I didn't realize I was going to get into it this deeply or this at this level of controversy and and bring in so many different tangents. I think this has been one of the more interesting mosaics that we have uh, woven into one of our podcasts. God bless you, Michael. Thank you for your participation. See you next week, gang.
0: Thanks for listening to the Rock Art Podcast with Dr. Alan Garfinkel and Chris Webster. Find show notes and contact information at www.arcpodnet.com forward slash rock art. Thanks for listening and thanks for sharing this podcast with your family and friends. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland,